Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends. On this Friday morning, February 25, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, and welcome to this week's Reporters' Roundtable, our chance to round up the news of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters. And this week, the news is all about war, war, war. No longer the threat of war, but actual war. Vladimir Putin's war finally unleashed against Ukraine with Russian forces already inside the capital of Kiev. So what's Putin's ultimate game plan? How far is he willing to go? Will sanctions ultimately stop him? Are they tough enough? How long before they kick in? And will NATO forces remain united against Putin aggression? And meanwhile, what about the Republican Party? Will they follow Donald Trump in praising Putin or go back to Ronald Reagan in condemning him? All of which should make for an interesting State of the Union address next week, provided it's not disrupted by a trucker strike shutting down the nation's capital and looks like big news today on the Supreme Court front. Well, here today to wrap it up and make some sense of it all for us, from USA Today, national political correspondent David Jackson. David, welcome back. Hi, Bill. From 19th News, Washington correspondent Amanda Becker. Amanda, good to see you too. Happy uh, to be here. Thank you. And from the National Journal, editor-in-chief, Jeff Dufer. Hello, Jeff. Good morning, Bill. Ah, yes, there it is. That sound that was heard all over Ukraine again this morning, the second day in a row as the Russian invasion of of Ukraine continues with Russian troops already inside the capital city of Kiev. Uh, the first wave of an invasion, or the second day of an invasion, that clearly has been in the works a long time. And at the White House yesterday, President Biden left no doubt about who is responsible. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war. And now he and his country will bear the consequences. David Jackson, you've told me that recently you did a tour of the battlefields of Normandy. Did you ever think in our lifetime we would see another ground war in Europe? No, not at all. Certainly not to this degree. I mean, I, I'm not, I, wasn't, I wasn't shocked that Putin attacked Ukraine proper, but uh, the, uh, the velocity and, the, and the, the, the volume of the attack, I mean, it's, like you said, it's just like a World War II kind of a thing. I did not expect that, and I don't, I don't think a lot of people around the world did either. It's quite stunning. Uh, and Jeff, 
it, it, you know, we cover a lot of stories, uh, and no matter how long we've been at this, but this, in terms of the consequences of this war in Ukraine, this is like beyond anything we've ever had to deal with, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, to, to think two years ago, uh, sorry, two years, two days ago, we were, uh, the, the big debate in Washington was, is this an invasion or not? Uh, when he was just talking about declaring independence for the breakaway provinces and reclaiming that territory. And then 12 hours later, there was absolutely no question whether it was a full-on invasion or not. Uh, when they started lobbing rockets into Kiev. Um, when, you've, when you've got the news this morning, which was, which was really sobering, that the, the, the civil authorities in, in Kiev have, uh, have asked the citizens to defend the city with Molotov cocktails if necessary. And they have uh, offered arms to anyone who wants them, uh, eight, 18 or older. Um, that, this, is, this is real, real serious stuff. Yeah, Amanda, you do get the sense, don't you, that uh, while the uh, Ukrainian president and his people are putting up some tough talk, that this is vastly one-sided, almost a David and Goliath battle? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just I'm not even sure an American or most of us can wrap our heads around what it must be like there right now. I mean, and obviously I've just been seeing the live footage just like everyone else. I'm not there. But I mean, you have people sheltered in subway stations as as bombs go off overhead. And like he just said, I mean, they've handed out hundreds of thousands of weapons to people to arm themselves. These are civilians, um, not members of their military. And I I don't think I, I thought I would see something like this, frankly, in my lifetime. Uh, and David, the consequences of this uh, go far beyond Ukraine, correct? Uh, in terms of the, the, how serious this matter is, it's not just Russia versus Ukraine. Oh, no, no, not at all. I mean, the Russian economy is so tied into the particularly European economy, but also the American economy. I mean, they're very much, I mean, the fate of the global economies at stake here is is the bottom line. And if Putin seizes Ukraine and it looks like he's got a good chance to do it, he may go after other countries in, in his neighborhood. And it's we're, lo- we're looking at a decades long problem. Uh, and Jeff, isn't it also writ large? Um, I wouldn't say the future of democracy, but... Uh, maybe um, the ability of democracy to resist uh, autocratic efforts to wipe it out across the globe. Yeah. And the, what's, what's, been, what's been striking to me is the fact that we're talking about a long-scale uh, insurgency, potentially, in Ukraine. Um, a, a lot of members of Congress are, are now calling for more funds uh, specifically to fund uh, insurgent activities, uh, essentially a, a, a potentially years-long guerrilla mm-hmm. war uh, in in Europe. Yeah, this is it's you know bluntly, this is not the kind of thing we expect to see in Europe. It's the kind of thing we've 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 come to accustomed to in 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 Africa or Asia or other places, uh, but certainly not in in mainland Europe. Um, and. That I think that does present a problem for Putin, though. I mean, pr- projecting your power, especially with a, with a country like his, where the economy has not been great and the stock, his stock market tanked 50% the other day after the invasion, um, 
there's there's been estimates that he does not have enough troops remotely in order to fully occupy the country. Uh, the the 170 or, or mm-hmm. so thousand that he amassed on the border is, is not remotely sufficient. Um, and and this is this is essentially how you bankrupt a country is to try to project your power uh, over vast distances and 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 occupy another country. Um, and the the people of Russia don't seem too keen on this either. You know, we saw giant protests in St. Petersburg. Um, yeah. So I, 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 you really have to wonder how this whole thing plays out uh, in in terms of in terms of geopolitics. And like and like David said, uh, if if Putin really gets emboldened, uh, then you have to worry about the Baltic states and a real mm-hmm. Article Five question with NATO. Yeah, I want to get to that Article Five in just a bit, but but so. Uh, Amanda, to the extent that any of us can figure it out from what we've seen, what we've heard, uh, what is Putin's end goal here? Uh, I mean, he must know the realities that Jeff was just talking about in terms of the impact on his economy. Um, what do we think he's like? He's really up to. Is it, I'm, is it, I'm, is, I'm not sure Putin's mind is a place I want to spend too much time, but um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I think in the near term, it would be to absorb Ukraine into Russia and have it not exist as a separate nation state and have it, you know, in 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 the um, address he gave before this all escalated, um, he essentially said he didn't believe it was its own country and, and belonged to Russia. So I think in the near term, that's the goal. I don't know if he's successful in that, whether it ends there or if there's uh, other moves he would make um, on the European mm-hmm. continent or elsewhere. But, uh, you know, I, too, have been really struck by the protests that we have seen going on there um, from the Russian people. Um I think it's important to remember that that's very different than here. And they're doing that at great personal risk and cost. And I don't know if, if this drags on for a long time um, and they're facing, you know, a lack of support from the people and potentially bankrupting the country. I don't, you know, I, I kind of don't know how that changes the calculus exactly for, for Putin. So, of course, the other question is, uh, how do we, we were not able to deter Putin, but how can we uh, get him to reverse course or to stop him? Uh, President Biden announcing measures at the White House yesterday on top of the earlier measures, uh, sanctions that were introduced when Putin first uh, sent uh, forces just into the two breakaway eastern parts of Ukraine. Uh, Here's the president from the East Room yesterday. Today's actions... We've now sanctioned Russian banks that together hold around $1 trillion in assets. We've cut off Russia's largest bank, a bank that holds more than one-third of Russia's banking assets by itself, cut it off from the U.S. financial system. And today, we're also blocking four more major banks. That means every asset they have in America will be frozen. David Jackson, tough enough? Well, of course, it depends on who you ask. I mean, uh, from my understanding is the Russian Russia has not been t- torn off from the European financial banking system. I mean, the one, those sanctions do not include the idea of kicking Russia out of this so, so-called swift banking, which is a basically a banking email system that uh, helps you make transactions. Russia is still a part of that. 
Um, I think they, they, they will hurt. But the, the, the problem Biden has is that, uh, as I said, the Russian economy is very tied up into ours and the world economy. So the more you sanction the Russian economy, the, the, the more it's going to boomerang against your economy and hurt some of your businesses, particularly in the financial sector. So um, he's got a problem there because if they're, if they're too tough, it's going gonna, it's gonna to create a lot of problems in other countries. And also any sanctions are going to take years to manifest themselves. It's not going to happen right away. Well, Jeff, that, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, that seems to me one of the problems, particularly with the public perception of sanctions. I, I, I noticed among the White House press corps yesterday, right, people were basically saying, you put sanctions on, why didn't they immediately work, right? Well, I mean, uh, five minutes later, it's supposed to be over, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we had a, a State Department official admitted to us yesterday that, that sanctions can work but it can take a, a very long time and it may involve pain not only for the Ukrainians in the meantime, but for the entire the economy of the entire Western world. Um, and, and you can point to a, a case like South Africa, uh, it, which took, what, 15 years of, of sanctions under apartheid before that, Good point. Before, right. that, before that finally resolved. Um, the, the, the quote to us was, was, you can think of Putin as a geopolitical doomsday prepper. Um, he's got a lot of money squirreled away. He's priced in the fact that that these sanctions were going to happen, and 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 he anticipated it. Um, now I think there's when Congress gets back next week, I, I think there's a lot of other things that are that are going to happen. Um, there's a, a a cleverly named uh, "Never Yielding Europe's Territory Act," the NIET Act, uh, <laughs> which would uh, which would impose. Uh, secondary <laughs> sanctions on, on mm -hmm. financial institutions that do business with sanctioned Russian banks. So not just sanctioning them, but sanctioning anyone who does business with them. So th there are some second and third order uh, options on the table e economically, uh, but, but this is by no means a, a magic bullet or a quick one. Right. Uh, so Amanda, I think earlier you referenced the fact that Putin uh, he may want to put the old Soviet Union back together, but he may want to actually move even further than that, which gets into a uh, possible threat to actual members of NATO. Um, but the president um, yesterday, again, back to President Biden in the East Room, uh, said that we're going to help as much as we can, but we are not sending forces on the ground into Ukraine. Here's President Biden. Our forces are not and will not be engaged in the conflict with Russia in Ukraine. Our forces are not going to Europe to fight in Ukraine, but to defend our NATO allies and reassure those allies in the East. As I made crystal clear, the United States will defend every inch of NATO territory with the full force of American power. So, Amanda, the president saying no, no ground forces in Ukraine. But if he goes beyond that into any NATO country like Poland, it sounds like he's going to invoke Article 5 and we will be at war. That's what it sounded like to me. And um, actually, after his speech yesterday, I went back and rewatched it just to make sure I'd heard it correctly. And it, it, it does seem to me that saying in Ukraine um, was very um, intentional. And that is how I interpreted the president yesterday. Right. David, in a sense, doesn't Putin make the strongest argument for why maybe Ukraine should have been part of NATO? <laughs> <laughs> he said, yes, he does. I still haven't quite understood why uh, NATO didn't go ahead and take Ukraine for this very reason. But 
I guess they, at that point we were trying to mollify Putin and work with him. But uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, that's I think if Ukraine was part of NATO, this wouldn't be happening. But uh, that's water under the bridge at this point. Right. So, Jeff, what do the American people care about? Uh, think about that. Do they care? Do they know where Ukraine is? What's going on? Uh, and are the American people willing to suffer any pain or make any sacrifice to help Ukraine? Well, there there was a little bit of polling on your first question. I think uh, Morning Consult did a poll on this and found that only 34% of Americans knew where Ukraine was and could point it out on a map, So, uh, which is about what I would think. Right. Uh, in in terms of the broader public opinion, uh, I, I think it, it it breaks down a little bit on party lines, uh, but not not quite as much as you would think. Um, there was a there was a poll by by CBS that showed forty three percent preferred that the U.S. support Ukraine. Fifty three percent thought the U.S. should just wash their hands and stay out of the whole thing, which is probably some uh, so, some blowback from the uh, experience in Afghanistan. And 4% uh, thought that we should support Russia, uh, which is, you know, that's probably the, um, there's probably some overlap there between the uh, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram viewership and and the folks who who believe that. Um, I don't get a sense yet that this is priced into public opinion. Um, I I think we're going to actually have to see how this affects the global economy, um, how it affects inflation. If if these measures get worse, uh, yeah, it, it could it could be even worse for 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 Biden. But we're not there yet. But uh, but of course, as you indicated, there are voices out there who either uh, take Putin's side or just use it as another attempt to uh, uh, pile on uh, Joe Biden. And of course, leading the pack is the former president Donald Trump, who once again. Um, uh, takes it all back to the 2020 election. That's what it's all about. Uh, here was Donald Trump right after Putin first sent forces into Ukraine. He was going to be satisfied with the peace, and now he sees the weakness and the incompetence and the stupidity of this administration. And it all happened because of a rigged election. This would have never happened. And that includes inflation, and that includes millions of people pouring in on a monthly basis, and they're destroying our country. All right. So, Amanda, there it is. It's all, if, if only the election had gone the other way, this would never have happened. Surprise, 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 right? Yeah. Um, I think there, there's people that are already forgetting some of our, our recent history um, and the fact that actually Donald Trump's first impeachment trial was about um, withholding aid to Ukraine um, and favoring Russia. So, you know, I too am, am interested to see how this all starts playing out in the in the U.S. court of public opinion. And I think it's going to be really interesting to watch. Yeah. Uh, but David, another voice, of course, and uh, Jeff mentioned him earlier, um, conservative, Republican, Fox News host, Tucker Carlson, uh, gets he doesn't take the 2020 election, in, but this is what he says. If you want to know what the Ukraine war is all about, here's what it is, according to the gospel of Tucker Carlson. You've been watching the news. You know that Putin is having a border dispute with a nation called Ukraine. Now, the main thing to know about Ukraine for our purposes is that its leaders once sent millions of dollars to Joe Biden's family. Not surprisingly, Ukraine is now one of Biden's favorite countries. Biden has pledged to defend Ukraine's borders even as he opens our borders to the world. That's how it works. 
There you go, David. It's all about Hunter. Yeah, I like the border dispute comment. Yeah, yeah, oh, they're yeah. having a border dispute. Putin mm-hmm. wants to eliminate it. That's the dispute. <laughs> right. um, you know, I, I don't. I just don't understand it. I mean, I, I guess I guess it goes back to the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So uh, Putin is an enemy of Biden, and therefore we're gonna we're gonna back him. I guess I could only say that so far from what I've seen, this pro-Putin attitude is kind of confined to Trump and his very right-wing supporters, including Tucker and some of the members of Congress. But I think by and large, from what I've seen is most, most of the Republicans are very, are very critical of Putin, starting with Mitch McConnell. But I also want to note that there were a surprising number of Republican statements in the last couple of days that were critical of Biden as well. I, mm-hmm. I think that's pretty extraordinary. And it's another sign of the times we live in that we have an international crisis and people feel the need to attack uh, the president from the other party. Well, indeed, um, Jeff, yesterday, um, Elise Stefanik from New York, uh, who took Lynn Cheney's place, she's now the number three ranking Republican um, in, in the House, put out a statement right after the president's news conference yesterday saying uh, that the whole thing proves how unfit Joe Biden is to be president of the United States. Is this risky for the Republican Party? I don't know if it's risky uh, so much as it is uh, it's a bit divisive uh, for the Republican Party. Um, you, there's, there's a split in, in terms of the old school kind of foreign policy hawks that might have been at home in the, as you indicated earlier, in, in the Reagan era. Um, even Marco Rubio and Ron Johnson uh, made strong statements against Russia, which, which sort of separate them from, from Trump. And they're trying to take shots at, at, at Biden as well. Uh, but, you know, short of marching the, the 10th Mountain Division up to the Ukrainian border, uh, I'm not entirely sure what, uh, how much stronger Biden could have been in the, in the, in the run-up to this, at least if, if, until something happened. Um, so you, you've got this old school Republican hawkishness on the other hand, and then you've got this this Trumpism on the other hand that they haven't quite been able mm-hmm. to, to to reconcile. And it's I, I think the danger is that Democrats have been the ones that have been divided for the last year and a half or so uh, with with their the center versus the left, uh, and Republicans have been have been unified in opposition. If Republicans going into the midterms also start to get divided. Uh, then that that becomes a problem for them. Speaking of Joe Biden, Amanda, in a sense, this is a role that Joe Biden was made for, right? I mean, uh, he was chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was vice president of the United States. He was in charge of Ukrainian policy uh, for President Obama. Um, this is his moment. Um, we'll see what history will say, but so far... Uh, how do we think he's done? Oh, it's early. Um, I don't yeah. know. It's it's our politics have just gotten so erratic and things happen on such a consistent basis that I never would have thought we would see um, such as, you know, a couple of things we've been talking about, which is members of Congress putting out statements that both are slamming Putin and criticizing Joe Biden. I mean, that's very different um, than you know, headed into other conflicts where we we rallied around our president um, as a country. And so whether this plays out and he will be seen as handling this effectively or not, um, I don't know in the court of a public in the court of public opinion. But, you know, 
he's certainly made for this situation given his background and experience. Right. Uh, and I think a lot of that, again, will depend on how long it takes, how long it takes to play out, how well the sanctions work or don't. And we will continue uh, to follow that. But there is a little bit of other news in the week that, that happened this week, and maybe even later today, uh, that we can talk about, which we will, with today's panel here on our roundtable, David Jackson from USA Today, Amanda Becker from 19th News, and Jeff Dufour from the National Journal. Let's take a quick break, and they'll be right back. So I want to take a moment today to talk about something I really care about, and that is a functioning democracy. Maybe you've noticed this too, but there's been a lot of bad news on that front recently. I know it can be tempting to tune it all out, but it's so important that we stay engaged. The good news is that there are tangible ways we can all help fix things. Here's one of them. A bunch of us in the podcast community have partnered with Represent Us, a nonpartisan organization to spread the word about efforts to protect our elections and pass laws that'll make our government truly of, by, and for the people. We're doing this because America does face urgent anti-democratic threats. 19 states have already passed laws that make it harder to vote. Election workers are quitting in droves because of threats and harassment. And there's a coordinated campaign to put people in charge of our elections who don't believe in democracy. But again, there are things we can do together to ensure free and fair elections. So if you care about the state of our democracy like we do, it's time for all of us, independents, progressives, and conservatives, to put country over party and take a stand. I ask you to Take a look at represent.us slash podcast to learn more and sign up. That's again, represent.us slash podcast. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back with today's roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, Jeff Dufour joining us from the National Journal, Amanda Becker from 19th News, and David Jackson from USA Today. 
A word is that the president has made a decision, and he will announce later today his decision for the Supreme Court. All right, Jeff, who is it? I have, if you asked me this question a month ago, I would have said Ketanji Brown Jackson, and I am going to still say that right now. <laughs> she was, she's, she's always seems to be the, uh, the, 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 the handicapping leader, and I don't think anything has changed that. I'm, I'm truthfully surprised that it took Biden uh, this long to, that he took the, the full month in order to, to make a decision and, and, and announce it. Uh, do you agree, uh, Amanda? And what are her strengths? I do agree. Um, and, you know, we've been watching her pretty closely. Um, she obviously fulfills his campaign promise to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court if he was presented with a vacancy. She's highly qualified. We're going to be finding out a lot more about her in the coming days. Um, and my colleague will have a, a fascinating story out at, at some point soon examining her days at Harvard University and Harvard Law School. Um, so uh, it, she's been kind of the favorite uh, for some time now. And so this this isn't much of a surprise that it looks like it's shaping up to be her. So, David, the um, members of the Washington legal establishment that I talked to, they all supported her. Most of them wrote letters in her support. Uh, Amanda says she's part of that circle, Harvard Law, Harvard uh, university. Um, and, but Jim Clyburn, Congressman Jim Clyburn was making the opposite argument. We need somebody <laughs> from your state, David, exactly. South Carolina. We need a non Ivy leaguer up there, university of South Carolina. Yeah. So what happened? Um, well, that's right. And of course, you remember, uh, uh, president Biden pledged to appoint the first, uh, black female justice during the campaign. He did that during the South Carolina primary and he did right. that at the behest of one Jim Clyburn. Yep. So Clyburn has a big stake in this. He had, he had his judge in mind when he, when he made this suggestion. And I think, I think basically that Biden just went through the, went through the motions to interview her and just to, to placate him. But I think judge, uh, uh, judge Jackson has always been the front runner. You know, when she was put up for the federal appeals court, it, Couple, last year, it was considered a trial run for a U.S. Supreme Court confirmation. I think that's going to come to fruition. And in fact, our old pal Jake Tapper just tweeted that his source says that uh, it is indeed going to be uh, Judge Jackson. Right. Uh, and there was a little hint of that yesterday when uh, the D.C. court uh, issued its uh, findings for this week on Thursday rather than Friday, which they normally do, which indicated that the judge may have <laughs> another <Yeah. laughs> another scheduling conflict today. Right. Well, you know, John Roberts, who was who was had a kind of similar career, did that uh, right before he got nominated for the Supreme Court. So yeah, that's a tell. Right. Uh, so that uh, while a war is going on, we may have a no new nominee for the Supreme Court. Looks like it will be today, and that it will be uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Um, while the war is going on, David, I mean, um, Jeff, are we going to have a State of the Union address next week? Uh, it sure seems like it. Uh, if uh, not, nothing has really uh, delayed it too long, although this is going to be one of the latest State of the Unions we've ever had, mostly because of, of, of COVID and wanting to give COVID a little bit more time, the Omicron wave to burn itself out. Um, but it'll go off. Uh, the I think it might be uh, paradoxically a little advantageous for Biden because now it becomes a foreign policy speech. Mm -hmm. um, instead of talking about resurrecting Build Back Better and some of his domestic policy agenda that's been stalled, 
he now gets to put on the hat of a leader during a crisis. Um, I think voters don't often pull the lever on foreign policy, but but this is the kind of situation where he can more broadly burnish his marks on on intangibles like competence and, and leadership, uh, which certainly going back to Afghanistan, that I think it was it was less that voters were 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 really gonna gonna go to the polls based on Afghanistan, and that was an example of of, of the whole episode. Uh, tarnishing him uh, on on competence and leadership, and he has the uh, a chance to get some of that back now. I think. Well, we remember that Amanda that uh, uh, playing that, that dynamic, if you will, playing well for President George W. Bush. Right? Um, I mean, I remember whether whether it was right after the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, or nine eleven. When you know his State of the Union was like a campaign rally. Right? He was a commander in chief. Uh, as opposed to the president of the United States uh, addressing the forces. So um, uh, do you think that's the reception that Biden will receive next week? I don't think it will be to that extent, personally. I mean, I think our our, our times are different and our politics have changed. Um, I think people are a lot more divided. And as we've already discussed, we've already seen members of Congress um, mm-hmm. using this as an opportunity to criticize Biden. So while I do think this plays to his strengths and allows him to focus on this next week, um, I'm not sure it will have the same unifying rallying effect as we've seen in the past. Uh, David, do we know um, what steps are being taken COVID-wise for the State of the Union? I mean, this is not going to be every member, as we've seen in the past, jammed into the uh, House chamber for a State of the Union. What are they doing yes, about I think they, I think they'll be separated. I'm not familiar with the details, but yeah, there will be there will be phys- physical distancing, which is fine with some of the Republicans because I think some of them don't <laughs> want to show up anyway. So that'll make that'll make things a lot easier. By the way, I think that a lot of this, uh, I think a lot of this is going to be devoted to the campaign. I, it's not talked about much by the White House, but I think that a large part of this speech will be the Biden slash Democratic campaign agenda for 2022. And I know the Republicans are treating this as a political event and they've got a lot of ads lined up to it to attack him over it. You, you mean beyond uh, Ukraine, beyond Putin, right? That he well, Ukraine will... probably could possibly be a part of it because I, I, mm-hmm. you know that a lot of dem- Democratic pollsters are asking people about Ukraine and Biden's handling of it. So that there'll be there'll be a touch of politics even in that, I suspect. Okay. Uh, so, Jeff, I forget exactly where you live, but uh, you live near the Beltway, don't you? I do, yes. So is the Beltway still rolling this about morning? Two, or about have two the, miles. Have, have the truckers uh, shut it down yet? My wife actually headed to a doctor's appointment in Fairfax, and apparently the Beltway was just fine. Um, it, it's really unclear what the what kind of trucker protest is going to materialize after all. Uh, the only thing that's maybe for certain is that uh, they're, they're not going to get anywhere near the Capitol for the State of the Union. <laughs> uh, certainly not in a truck. I mean, e- e- you can't even, you've been up there for the State of the Union, Bill. You can't get anywhere near there without a hard pass. Uh, there's a four-block radius or so that, that that's completely shut down, even if you're walking, much less driving a semi. Right. Um, I, so I, I, would al- well, I was just going to say, I would also point out that I live on Capitol Hill, uh, and you can't get a truck down Independence Avenue or Constitution Avenue any day of the week, any time of day. They're just prohibited. Period. Period. No trucks. Period. 
I now, see them stopped all the time. Yeah. They could they could theoretically blockade the 14th Street Bridge mm. or the Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson Bridge or or something to that effect. Um, but it's it's certainly not going to disrupt the State of the Union. It's but it's this movement, quote unquote, uh, is so decentralized that it's hard to anticipate what kind of impact it's going to have. It was decentralized in Canada, and it's even more decentralized here. There, last I read, there were six different convoys trying to organize from six different places and they they may or may not converge and they may or may not have a plan when they get here so who's to say do they have a point amanda i i can't figure out what is this protest all about i mean i i didn't necessarily support it but i understood if you couldn't get across a bridge into the united states without having to show proof of vaccination that was at least one point What's the point of blocking the Capitol Hill Capitol Beltway? Well, I think the point is to make life difficult for the people they are upset with in the quote unquote swamp. Um, what I'm not sure they're considering most of whom most of whom I point out never use the Beltway. Exactly, well, that was going to be my next my I'm next sorry. point. I was actually on the Beltway last night. I live in Washington D.C. proper. I was on the Beltway last night. But that was the first time in several months. Um, my life exists inside the Beltway. I'm not sure they know where my neighborhood is or, <laughs> or how to get here or, like was mentioned, would fit on some of the streets. You know, you can barely pass a car on a lot of the streets near me. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure uh, a lot of planning or thought went into this particular protest. <laughs> I'm not sure. So I want, I want to wrap up before we get to our favorite stories of the week. David, let me circle back to you, back where we started. Um, if you had to, um, based on your reporting and what you've seen, uh, surmise where we will be vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine a week from today, Will there still be a Ukraine? Will there still be a Ukrainian government? Will President Zelensky still be in power? You know, uh, one week, uh, it's an eternity these days. I, I, I might bet no. Um, we don't even know where Zelensky is. Now he's doing videos, but he's supposedly not in Kiev. So I, 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 don't, uh, I don't like his chances, I got to say. It looks like it could happen that fast. Jeff, what's your take? Um. I agree. I think we might see a, uh, a government in exile type situation, uh, but I, I certainly don't see him uh, running the country from Kiev uh, a week from now. Amanda, it does look a week is a long time, but it does look like uh, the, what we, from what we've seen so far, um, Ukraine would not be able to hold out that long. Do you agree? I do. I agree with, with all of you. Um, this is all happened very quickly. It was just 48 hours ago um, that kind of the, the ground invasion started and we've already seen areas start to fall um, and people fleeing. So, uh, you know, I, I do agree we could be seeing a government in exile type situation within the week. Okay. David Jackson, Jeff Dufour, Amanda Becker, thank you so much for your views this morning and for your time. Uh, with everything else going on, uh, we always say there's one story that really catches your, captures your attention for whatever reason makes you happy or sad or laugh out, sad or laugh out loud. Um, your favorite story of the week, 
Let's just go around the table here. Uh, Jeff Dufer, help us out. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start out with, uh, I'm just going to read a quote. Ah, okay. <laughs> quote, I don't remember anything until I woke up or came to and I was throwing up in a hamper. Unquote. This was a Democratic con- candidate for Congress in Oklahoma. Oh, right. I knew I'd read it somewhere. Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> she was at a, oh. uh, a Valentine's Day sleepover uh, hosted by the daughter of one of her friends. <laughs> she was hanging out with these 12 and 13-year-old oh. girls watching Titanic. Um, she got <laughs> drunk and apparently uh, took some other oh. pills that didn't oh. quite agree with her and um, oh. began to berate all the girls uh, to the point where they started uh, crying and leaving the party. And then that only ended when she uh, vomited in a laundry basket. So <laughs> if, if, if you think that a Democrat would have problems in, in Oklahoma <laughs> already, you'd be right. Uh, but this is probably not going to help the Democrats case in, uh, in the, in the red state of Oklahoma. Uh, and she will probably not be the democratic nominee to take uh, Jim Inhofe's place. In the I Senate. would think, I would think not. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, what a start for your campaign. David Jackson, how about you? Uh, the story that caught my eyes in the New York Times, it's basically about a bear in South Lake Tahoe, California. Oh. <laughs> Since the summer, he's broken into more than two dozen homes and, and, poached food from the good residents out there. He's grown to 500 pounds and now goes by the name of Hank the Tank. This is the, too bad we can't show the picture, but this is the biggest animal I've ever seen. It's incredibly fat, but he's also been hard to catch. He's evaded a lot of traps. And the, the thing that the, heartened me about this story is the fact that the wildlife uh, officials out in California suggested you're just going after Hank and quote, euthanizing him, i.e. killing him. But the residents in the in lovely South Lake Tahoe objected to that. They want to try to just capture him peacefully and maybe move him to a zoo or a sanctuary. So in this uh, time of travail and war, it's, it's good to see people sticking up for life. Uh, and by the way, that story caught my attention, too. Uh, we were with our family in Lake Tahoe um, about a year ago. And two nights in a row, a bear uh, actually broke into two of our cars opening the door, they were like opening the door, getting inside the car, climbing inside the car, rooting around for snacks, which he found in one car and not in the other car. I do not know that that was Hank or not. But Was he uh, especially fat bear? I think you would have noticed if it was Hank the Tank. Uh, <laughs> I did not see the bear. That happened in the middle of the night. But, uh, it, could have been, it could have been Hank. Okay, Amanda. Well, <clears throat> I appreciate the levity of those two stories. And of course, oh. now I'm going to choose something <laughs> serious. Oh, you um, bring us down, man. <laughs> I know. Well, it's not depressing necessarily. Um, just, just, uh, it's about the Supreme Court. And, you know, Supreme Court has obviously been very much on my mind this week because we were waiting for this nominee from the president. But it is a, actually a story that will be in the New York Times Magazine this weekend, but it's been online this week. The title is The Long Crusade of Clarence and Jenny Thomas. Oh. Um, and I, this is the first time I have kind of seen Jenny Thomas's role in the aftermath of Donald Trump's election loss explored to this extent. You know, we kind of heard things here and there about groups she was tied to or groups she supported that funded the insurrection on January 6th. But uh, this is, you know, written by two uh, very 
very skilled investigative reporters and really just delves into exactly um, what Jenny Thomas has been up to leading up to that loss and afterwards. And I highly recommend it to anyone who kind of wants a better understanding of kind of how that day came to be. Look forward to reading that. I would also suggest that people go back a couple of weeks to the New Yorker magazine and the profile that Jane yes. Mayer, Jane Mayer did of Ginny yes. uh, Thomas as well. You had the two of them together. They also, the New Yorker, um, just after that, had a really interesting one about Amy Coney Barrett and kind of the conservative long game. Um, so there's just some really excellent coverage coming out related to the Supreme Court and specifically um, women who are related to the court. So, of course, at the 19th, that always catches my eye. Right. Uh, and for my part, I, I want to take a moment just to uh, pay tribute to a friend that we lost this week, uh, a fellow journalist, a fellow uh, TV commentator, a talk show host, uh, and basically shit disturber by the name of Bob Beckel. Bob, yeah. when, I, when I first came to Washington in 1996 to be co-host of Crossfire um, during the week, five days a week, Bob Beckel was a co-host on Sunday nights. The Sunday Night Crossfire, he was co-hosting with Lynn Cheney, <laughs> uh, Liz's mother at the time, and uh, Bob and I uh, became good friends. Uh, he did a great job there. He went on, of course, as co-host of The Five on Fox News as well. Uh, he got his start as a Democratic strategist and a campaign manager. When that was over, uh, Bob Beckel famously said that only in America could you run a presidential campaign and lose 49 out of 50 states and then still get a job on television. So <laughs> uh, Bob uh, was, was, a, was a great guy, uh, passed away this week, uh, but he, uh, he certainly uh, had a lot of fun and made a big, big impact while he was here. Uh, and with that, we thank the members of our panel, David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today, Amanda Becker, Washington correspondent for 19th News, and Jeff Dufour, Editor-in-Chief of the National Journal. Uh, thank you, good friends, and thanks all of you for joining us. Thanks for listening. We'll continue, of course, to watch the situation in Ukraine, and we'll be back on Tuesday, uh, provided there is still a Ukraine, uh, one way or the other. We'll be back on Tuesday talking about Ukraine, every aspect of it, with Joe Cirincione, former president of the Plowshares Fund, and Stephen Pizer, who was ambassador our, our ambassador to Ukraine under President Clinton. That's the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Take care of yourselves, be strong, be safe, and we'll see you next Tuesday on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. <laughs>